Well, a special welcome to you, especially if this is your very first time. I know that uh, every, every week we do this time of greeting. Uh, we had a welcome resort at our house last night for new people, and it's just uh, so amazing how every time you hear the stories but, um, of how God's bringing people, but, but several of them just mentioned uh, how they just love the friendliness of the, of the church. I hope it's something we never lose, that we realize that when new people come to Rocky Peak, for us it's home, but for the first time you come in, it's an intimidating place to come in, find a parking place, get your kids in class, and Come on in, this big auditorium, and, and so it's so important for us to be reaching out. Several of the people have talked about how the people reached around them, they kind of reached out, made some new friends, it just suddenly felt like home, and so I hope that we'll continue to do that as a church, so we'll be reaching out uh, to those God is bringing. And uh, if you are here new today, I want to welcome you especially, uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and inside your weekend program is a white message note sheet that I'd ask you to take out if you would, uh, it'll uh, help you follow through our time of teaching. And then I'm going to pray, and we're going to launch right on in. God, we come as your church. We come to you as our leader. We acknowledge you, Jesus, as the leader of this church. And we pray as we pray every week that your spirit would come and be our teacher. God, it's the desire of our heart that we would know how to please you, (coughs) how to make you proud, how to follow you. And so we pray that as we come to your word, you'd meet us now. In a powerful way, speak to us by name, talk to us about the situations in our life, what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be part of this movement that you started 2,000 years ago. We pray in your name, amen. Our story starts today back in 2006. It was a fall. It was about two years ago. It was October. It was a Monday. In fact, it was October the 2nd, which happens to be my birthday, but, uh, but it wasn't a happy day back in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Uh, that day started off kind of as a normal day. It was a man named Charles Carl Roberts IV, 32 years old. He's a milkman. And uh, honestly, I didn't even know there still were milkmen in the world. But I guess Pennsylvania there are. And um, that day started like a normal day. He and his wife walked their young children to the bus stop as they did every day. When he came back, he went into his garage and he began to load up his pickup truck with a bunch of supplies that he'd been stockpiling the last week. Uh, Plastic ties, ammunition, shotgun, earplugs, wooden planks, nails, wrenches, bolts. Piled in the back of his truck and he drove off to Amish country. Went to a little town named Nickel Mines, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning, right after recess ended at 10.25, he went to this one-room Amish schoolhouse, and there at 1025, after the children came in from recess, he went into the classroom, pulled out a 9-millimeter pistol. He ordered all the boys in the class to go out to his truck and to, to load all the supplies that he'd carefully accumulated last week, bring them into the, the classroom. After they did that, he ordered the adults out, then ordered the boys out. He was left alone with 10 little girls, ages 6 to 13. He took the boards that he had brought in, barricaded the door, and the siege began. Today we're continuing in this series that we've been in for a long time now called The Way. And uh, we're actually in a sub-series of it called Created for Community. It's the fourth and final sub-series. And for those of you who are brand new here, I always like to take 60, 90 seconds just to bring you up to speed. This, this series is called The Way. It's a study of the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. 
Now, if you're new at this whole Christianity and Jesus thing, the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest spiritual leaders, Christian leaders, uh, Christ followers of all time. And what we're doing in this series is we're coming alongside of him and asking him to mentor us. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this ancient movement that Jesus started over 2,000 years ago that in the early church they first called it the way? And every week our strategy is the same. We start with one of the Apostle Paul's longest and most famous letters, his, his letter to the church at Rome, used as a gateway, a jumping off point into the rest of his writings on that particular topic. And so today we come to chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, you know that chapter 12 starts with a, a challenge. The Apostle Paul says, okay, we're Christ followers, right? We've given our life to Jesus. And so if you believe what I've written in the first part of Romans 1 through 11, and you've given your life to Jesus, the only thing that makes any sense at all, if God really loves us that much to give us his son, and to forgive us in spite of what we've done. The only thing that makes any sense is we give ourselves totally to God. That we give Him what, remember, what I call the pink slip of our life, total surrender. And, and that we let Him change and reshape the way we think about life. Let Him change us from the inside out. Paul calls it the renewing of our minds. And he said that after we've done these two steps, we've given Him the pink slip of our life, total surrender, and we've let Him reshape the way we think about life, our perspectives on life. He said, then and only then will we begin to experience God's plan for our life, what Paul says, his good, his perfect, and his uh, pleasing will. And so then he's given us a couple examples in the last few weeks. Like two weeks ago, we talked about discovering our purpose in life. What does it look like to discover your purpose in life? And then last week, we talked about our relationship as Christ followers with government, politics, and what does it mean to be a Christ follower in the midst of a secular world and dealing with a secular government? And today we come back now, we're going to circle back to the middle, uh, the middle of chapter 12. And we're going to do chapter, the second half of chapter 12. And this, the topic today is all about relationships. Uh, what does it look like now that we're Christ followers, now that we've given ourselves to Christ, we want to be transformed, what does it look like to do relationships in a whole new way? And so he's going he's to take that through. And this passage is different than any other passage we've looked at in Romans so far. Uh, this passage is a series of like short, uh, rapid burst, uh, staccato-like commands of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Most of them deal with relationships, how to do relationships in a new way. There's some on attitudes, some on actions, but most on relationships. And especially the focus is how to do, how do we do relationships with people that view us as their enemies? How do we treat people that have done us wrong? How do we relate when people have hurt us? And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the second half of chapter 12. We're going to come back and focus especially on dealing with relationships with our enemies or those who have hurt us. The next week we'll come back in chapter 13 where he continues to talk about the law of love and talk about how we deal with relationships in the body of, of Christ. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 12. We'll pick it up at verse 9. And we'll go to the end of the, uh, end of the chapter. He says, love must be sincere. So the topic of chapter 12, the last half of 12, and the last half of chapter 13, the topic is love. And in fact, what we'll see next week is we'll talk about the law of love. And what he will say is that for us as Christ followers, there's, there's one relationship rule that rules them all, and it's the law of love. What would love do in this situation? And we'll explore that more next week. But for today, he says, Let love must be sincere. In other words, love must be, uh, it's not image, it's not words, it's, it's actions, it's deeds, it's, it's the real deal. 
um, the, the word in the Greek is actually literally not hypocritical. He says, love not be uh, hypocritical. He says, hate what's evil and cling to what's good. So when you love someone, it doesn't mean anything goes. There are, uh, love can be tough it, well, as well. Uh, be, to, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. A big part of love is putting others' needs above your own. We'll talk about that more next week. Never be lacking in zeal. Now he begins to talk about some, act, uh, some attitudes as Christ's followers were to have. And the first one he says that as Christ followers were to be passionate people. Now, this is going to look different in different kinds of people. Like some of you are very passionate people, but you never let your face know it, right? Like when we're around you, you may be very passionate, but we just don't know it. You're just more introverted. You're, you keep things in. And so you're really excited, you just, but it's harder to tell what your passions are. Others of us, the flavor of the day, we're going to know it. If you're around you, you know, flavor of the day, whatever you're excited about, we're going to know it. And so it's going to really vary. But Paul says whether you're more introverted and you keep your passions on the inside or, or you're more extroverted, you your passions out, that our top passion in life is to be uh, for Christ and for, for pleasing Him. And so he says, um, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your, um, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, he talks about some more attitudes. We're to be joyful in hope. Uh, we're to be people that are excited about the future, what God has planned for us in the future. We're to be patient in affliction, so we're hanging in there during hard times. We're to be faithful in prayer. Now he goes back to the relationship uh, topic, and he says, share with God's people who are in need. Uh, So we're to use our financial resources to help each other during hard times. We'll talk about that more next week. Practice hospitality. Uh, Use our our homes and our resources to to love people. Now, now he's going to talk about how to relate to those who see themselves as our enemies. And he says we're to bless those who persecute us. So as Christ's followers, if you haven't experienced this yet, some people are going to be real excited about you following Jesus. And there's going to be some persecution that comes with that. So he says, hey, when that happens, um, bless those who persecute you. Don't strike out. In fact, bless and do not curse. Now, this next statement is kind of a fun one. Um, He says we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, let's talk about this little sidebar for a second. This is a great little verse. You know, there's been some teaching in the Christian community over, over time that Christians should always be happy. That if you have Jesus in your life, you should always be happy. Um, I hate that kind of teaching. Uh, I don't think it's very true to life. And what I want you to catch here is that the Apostle Paul assumes there's going to be times in our life that are good times, and there's going to be times in our life that are hard times. And he says that when that happens, when we're going through the, hard, the good times, we should celebrate with one another. And when we're going through hard times, we should weep with one another, right? And so, you, do you see the picture he's painting? This is a very authentic community he's painting a picture, right? This is not a fake community. A lot of people think church should be fake, you know? You come in, you're, having, you're doing horrible. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Like, you never let on. Why? Because you'd be like a bad Christian or something if you ever let on you're having a bad day or a hard time. What I want you to catch is that's not the kind of Christianity the Apostle Paul teaches. He says, no, no, you need to be a community. When you're going through a hard time, we're all going to know it. We're going to weep with you. When you're going through good times, we're going we're to be there with you. And so it's, this, this helps us to not say kind of those stupid things that sometimes we can say, right? Like you go up to someone who's just lost their daughter in a tragic accident, and you say, well, I'm sure it was God's will because God works all things together for good to those who love God, and just God bless you. I'm sure you'll get over it. In fact, you should get over it right? And, and those things have been said sometimes in the name of Christ, haven't they? 
a very superficial thing. And, and so Paul says, no, 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 we want to be real with one another. We want to be authentic. It's that you're going through hard times, we're going to weep together. You go through good times, we're going to rejoice together. We're going to be a real community. And then he goes on and he says, uh, live in harmony with one another. And so get along. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. I love this. Paul says that the church of Jesus, this new community that he came to create, is supposed to be a place where old prejudices are broken down, where, where barriers of all kinds, racial barriers are broken down, social economic barriers are broken down. He says it used to be before you came to, to Jesus, you just hang out with people, you're some social economic class. Uh, you wouldn't have friends of other classes. You wouldn't hang out with people richer than you. You wouldn't hang out with people poorer than you. You just hang out with your own kinds of people. But he says, I, I want you to hang out with people that are lower on the social economic scale, that, I, that we should be able to have friends in different groups that, because it's not, that those, that's not the most important thing about you. And so he says, don't be conceited. Now, in verse 17, he begins to talk about how to relate to those, again, who are, see themselves as our enemies or who do us wrong. And he says in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, this will be a, a classic statement. We'll come back to it later. But he says, as Christ followers, one of the basic rules is we're not going to let uh, our behavior be determined by others' behavior. That if someone treats us wrong, we're not going to treat them wrong back. So he says, uh, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. So he says, you always take the high road in every situation. What will be the right thing to do? It doesn't matter what they did to you. What will be the right thing to do? Take the high road. Verse 18, he says, if it's possible, he realizes it's not always possible, but if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So he says, I realize that there's, somebody, there's some people just impossible to get along with. Maybe it's your mother-in-law or something like that. You know, I don't know. But, but there's some people that are impossible to get along with. He says, I understand that, but he says, make sure that you're getting along with everybody as much as it depends on you. So if you're not getting along with someone, make sure it's not your fault. It's not, it's not your issues that are causing it. Now, verse 19, he comes back to this retaliation theme, and he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, so, so this is one of the basic teaching of the Bible, that God is the judge of all the earth, that each of us will have to answer for our actions. So he says, so when someone does you wrong, don't try to make it right on your own and kind of get back at them. That's really God's business. He's the judge. And so let him take his revenge. They kind of turn it over to him. That's his job. And he says, on the contrary, and he quotes from Proverbs 25. He says, if your enemy is hungry, what are we supposed to do? Feed him. You see that? He says, so if someone is your enemy, if, you're, if you're, uh, he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, uh, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll, you will heat burning coals on his head. <laughs> Isn't it great? That's the part we like, right? Great. Could you just tell me how to heat burning coals? I'll do anything. I'll be nice to him. <laughs> um, now, it's funny. Honestly, we don't really know exactly what Paul means by this when he quotes this verse. Um, there's a couple different theories, so let me, let me give them to you. Uh, one theory is, is that when we are nice to someone who doesn't deserve it, we're getting them in bigger trouble with God. Okay? So it's kind of like, uh, uh, like, you know, like in a family, uh, if you're being nice to your brother and he keeps on picking on you, 
when dad finally gets aware of it, he's going he's to get the brother into bigger trouble because you weren't, you weren't uh, trying to you know, get him back, right? And so there's some who think, like, hey, just do nice to your enemies. You're getting them in bigger trouble with God, but they're going to be in big trouble now. God's really going to get that. The only problem is it doesn't really fit with the whole flow of the passage, right? We're to, to love our enemies and so on. So, you know, like, why would he be telling us how to get them really good? Um, the other, uh, the other, the other uh, kind of major theory is that what he's really saying, he's, he says, you know, when you treat your enemies, when you treat them really well, it's hard for them to keep on, re- keep on treating you poorly. That it's almost like you're, you're, you're causing their conscience to burn, you know? Almost like Gandhi or Martin Luther King with a civil disobedience. You know, you just, you just keep on doing the right thing. You just keep loving people. And after a while, they'll be ashamed of what they're doing, and they'll turn around. And so that may be what he's talking about. We're not really sure. But the bottom line is clear. He says, as Christ's followers, we're not to treat others like they treat us. We're to do the right thing. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay? So that's the passage. Now, here's what I want to do. And the time that we have together, I want to talk to you about a couple rules of relationships that are really non-negotiables for us as Christ's followers. Like we often talk here about the difference between essentials and non-essentials in our walk with God, right? And what we're talking about today is essential stuff. This is just like really non-negotiable. So like if you're here today and you've not yet made the decision to follow Jesus in your life, then you can decide whether to obey these rules or not. Because you've not come under his leadership yet, and so you have to decide whether to follow Jesus or not. But if you're here and you see yourself as a Christ follower, these rules of relationship that we're talking about are not, uh, they're not negotiable, right? These are not optional, not like a good suggestion. These are sort of mandatory, and these go to the core of what it means to be a Christ follower. In fact, there in your note sheet, you see a section that calls the rules of relationship two non-negotiables. Would you do me a favor and underline on your note sheet, non-negotiable. Okay. I just want to put two neon lights around this before we even jump in. That the things we're going to be talking about, they're non-negotiable. So let's jump in. Number one. Rule number one of relationship. That we have to renounce the law of retaliation. If we're going to follow Jesus, rule number one is we have to renounce the law of retaliation. Now, you say, well, what's the law of retaliation? Well, it's basically this. Uh, I'm going to treat you in the way that you treat me, especially if you treat me poorly, right? So if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. If you treat me well, I'll treat you well. In fact, if you hurt me, I'll probably hurt you back. In fact, I may hurt you even just a little bit more just to make sure you're clear this is not a good idea to hurt people, especially if it's me, right? And so, so that's kind of, now, uh, Jesus called this the, the law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, law of retaliation. You, you hurt my eye, I'm going to hurt your eye. And so there in your note sheet, uh, there's, a, there's a verse from Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you're here at Rocky Peak and you're new, or you've come this year, the only series you've ever known here uh, is The Way. It's the series on Romans. But we have done other things uh, in the past. And last year, our big series was called The Message and the Movement. It was on the, the series, it was on the, the life and teaching of Jesus uh, and the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given in the history of the world. And in that sermon, Jesus talked about this law of retaliation. So here it is, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. He said, you've heard, you've heard it said, uh, that was said, in other words, this is the way that they taught in the past. 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the law of retaliation. I'm going to treat you like you treat me. He says, but I tell you, I'm introducing a new way of relationship, a new way of living, that do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, we talked about this when we were in this series, uh, The Message of the Movement, that Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, often uses really extreme examples to make a point, kind of overstatements. And I don't think what he's saying here is that you just kind of let people run over you your whole life, or there's never a time and place to, to take legal action, for example. In fact, you know, in Romans chapter 13, we studied last week, remember we learned, Apostle Paul says the governing authorities are there in order to punish evildoers and reward those who do what's right. And he said God has given the government the, chan- the, the job of creating a safe society. And so it's appropriate time to prosecute people for broken laws and that kind of thing, okay? So neither Jesus or Paul is saying that you just kind of let people run over you or there's never a time to draw a boundary. We'll talk more about that next week. But what both Jesus and Paul are saying very clearly is that this whole way of relating to people where I will treat you based on how you treat me, those days are over. That if we're going to follow Jesus, there's no more room for the law of retaliation. And I want you to see that here in Romans chapter 12. So take your Bibles out. Let's look at the passage we just read through. And I want to point out four statements that are made just to make sure we're really clear on this. 12.14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You see the law of retaliation there? He says you don't treat people like they treat you. Right? Okay, that's number one. Second statement, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, you want to underline that word anyone, okay? Um, wouldn't it be great if God gave us like a free pass on just two or three people? <laughs> like, wouldn't it be great? Just says, okay, so here's, here's how it works. I don't want you to return evil for evil, but every person gets three people that they can violate this rule. Just three uh, but use them carefully. You've only got three over the course of a lifetime. You know, so invest. You know, if you're going to live 70 or 80 years, you get, every 20 years you get one. So you want to be very careful. But, but I want you to, to, to not repay evil for evil, but you get these three exceptions. Wouldn't that be great? I'm thinking who my three would be right now. But, um, you know, it's funny, but we laugh about that. But, you know, in real life, this is actually how we read this verse oftentimes, isn't it? We, we read it exactly like that, like, okay, in general, I agree with Jesus. In general, I agree with Paul, don't reply people. However, if you knew what this person did to me, okay, this one, in general, I'm going to follow Jesus, but in this one person, um, that what they did was so bad, it was so evil, it was so wrong, that I'm sure God will understand, Right? This is how we often read the verse. We, we read our Bibles like this, don't we? But I want you to catch this. Let's read it together, verse 17. Ready? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Let's read it again. Do not repay anyone evil for so Any exception clause there? No. Okay. Uh, let's go on to the next verse, uh, verse 19. Do not take what? Revenge. Don't take revenge. Leave that to God. Okay. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right, so four times, Paul lays out for us the teaching of Jesus 
that if we're serious about being Christ followers, we have to renounce the law of retaliation. Now, uh, help me out. Is this easy to do? Man, this is hard. This is tough, isn't it? It's almost like we're, like we're hardwired as fallen human beings, like we're hardwired for retaliation, right? The moment someone strikes us, it's like, boom, we're going to get you back. And it's just like, in fact, we're going to get you back even worse just to, to make our point. You don't do it again. Teach you a lesson. You shouldn't be doing things like that, right? Um, the, the week I was first working on this lesson, as many weeks ago, and first, I was first working on this, and uh, I w- you know, we live in Simi, and, and I realize that some of you from the Valley have, have never been there. Um, you're afraid of the, the guns, the violence, the rednecks, and so on. But, um, but we live in Simi, and, and there's this major east-west street in Simi called Los Angeles Avenue. And, and so I take it to work every day, drive down Los Angeles, go east, and it dead ends at Cooner. And when you get to Cooner, you take a right, and you go about, a, I'd say about a half mile on Cooner, and you go through several stoplights, and then Cooner becomes Santa Susana Pass Road, and then you, you come up the back way to the church. And this is why I go to, to work every day. And so uh, it was one morning, it was fairly early, and I was coming to work, and, and uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what the speed limit is there. Um, I'm guessing like maybe 45 but if I don't know, I can't break it. So, um, <laughs> so I'm guessing I'm guessing it's about 45. I'm guessing I was going about the speed limit that day, and, uh, and so I'm driving down. Let's just say 45, right? Just about. And uh, and all of a sudden, from one of the side streets, this this girl, I'd say 23 years old, 24 years old, in a black BMW, uh, she she pulls out in front of me going about 20 miles an hour. Are you serious? Have you not had your morning coffee? Are you not awake yet? You're going 20 miles an hour in a 45-mile-hour zone. You're breaking one of my rules. And so what do I do as a mature Christ follower, <laughs> as a uh, pastor of a large church, I speed up, pass her on the right, come back and cut her off. <laughs> Wait a minute, yeah. Right, and, uh, and so, now why did I do that? Was, was I in a hurry? Like, no, not really. Uh, was I going to get to work faster that day? Uh, no, there was another car in front of me. I couldn't pass. It's like, what was I doing? I was, I was punishing her for breaking one of my rules of the road. This is not how you do it. It's not how you drive. Someone needs to tell you. I don't know how you got this far in your life and you drive a BMW, but you, someone needs to, That car is built for speed. Let's step it up, will you? It's like, if you want to drive a Volkswagen, okay. You know, it's running on three cylinders. All right. You know, but, but uh, you're driving a BMW. Let's get with the program. And so, of course, instantly after I do it, I feel badly about this, right? Because that's not the way you're supposed to treat people, you know? And, uh, and so I, I would apologize if I could, but of course I can't. And uh, so I began to think, well, I, I just hope she doesn't go to Rocky Peak. Um, <laughs> and so now we're, we're moving up. Uh, we're driving up Santa Susana Pass. And for those of you who can visualize this, Box Canyon comes in there. And when Box Canyon comes into Santa Susana, 
uh, you can merge on to, uh, to Santa Susana from Box Canyon, and, and for just a very shortest distance, the road goes to two lanes to let people merging from Box Canyon to go on. And so I, I'm just kind of minding my own business, not really paying attention. I'm dictating, actually, to my, my assistant, dictating uh, as I'm going to work. And all of a sudden, BMW girl, she passes me on my right and pulls in front of me. Now, why did she do that? Was it because um, she was in a hurry? Are you kidding? She'd been going 20. Well, did she think she was getting to her destination faster? <laughs> no, there was another car in front of her. There shouldn't go anywhere. What was she doing? She was punishing me for punishing her, right? Now, this is how the world works, right? This is how life works apart from Jesus, right? This is how, <laughs> how it works in my life even with Jesus, but that's another <laughs> issue. <laughs> but this is how it works, right? This is how the, what makes the world goes around, and whether it's internationally or local or whatever, your job or your place or your family, it's like, you hurt me, I hurt you, right? This is the law of relationships. And Jesus comes and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say... You're going to follow me. We're going to learn how to do relationships in a new way, right? And so here's what I want you to catch, that this is one of those huge, huge principles of following Jesus, that if we're serious about being Christ's follower, we have to learn how to renounce the law of retaliation, okay? Now, second principle, second rule, it's really, it's kind of like flip side. It's really like both these rules are the flip side of the same coin, but I think it's helpful to pull them apart and look at them at, at, at separate sides. The, the flip side of this goes like this. Rule number two is that we need to embrace the law of forgiveness. So when I, we not only renounce the law of retaliation, okay, I give up the right, I'm going to strike you back, but uh, punish you back, but, but we also embrace the law of forgiveness. And, and, and by forgiveness, I'm talking about full forgiveness. We not only kind of don't strike back, but now we're moving on to actually do them good. Okay, we're actually seeking their, their best interests now. Um, now, we see this in Romans chapter 12 again. So let's, let's, let's pull out our Bibles, and we'll see how he talks about this. Verse 14, he says, Bless those who bless you, uh, or bless those who persecute you, and bless and do not curse. Do you catch this? He doesn't just say, do not curse those who curse you. That would be the law of no retaliation. He says, actually, bless those who curse you which is actually going the full way of forgiveness and doing them good. Uh, look at the next verse, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's the law of retaliation. But look what he says next. But be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. So we're actually going to take the high road and do the right thing by them, even though they haven't done the right thing by us. Uh, look at verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Okay, so we're not just not striking out our enemy, we're actually feeding him. And then verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, actually overcome evil with good. Now, catch this, this is exactly what Jesus did in our lives, right? That Jesus comes to planet Earth, the, the planet that's in rebellion, as we've learned in the, in the letter to Romans. He comes to those who are his enemies, who hate him, who say, I want to do life my own way, I don't want God to be ruling over my life, get out of here, God. Uh, I, I'm going to do my own thing. He comes to that, that world of enemies, and what we're told is that he dies for his enemies. 
Remember this? In Romans 5, we learn this. This is, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And so this is exactly what Jesus did for you and he did for me. That he, he came and when we cursed him, he blessed us. When we crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That when we said, I am your enemy, he said, I will be your friend. And by his goodness, he overcame our evil. You see this? Now, do you catch what I'm saying, how this is so core to what it means to be a Christ follower? This is at the core of what it means to be a Christ follower, that we will be people that follow him. So it makes no, it shouldn't surprise us that when you come to Jesus, he says, welcome. And then he says, okay, we are going to the school of forgiveness. You see? That to become a Christ follower, that we, we, uh, we embrace the school of forgiveness. Now, um, let's talk just a little bit about forgiveness then, what it looks like. Because what I found is even within the Christian community, there's often a lot of misconceptions that trip us up when we talk about what forgiveness is, what it isn't. So I just want to like quickly tell you three or four things it isn't, and then let's talk about what it is. Uh, first of all, forgiveness is not forgetting, right? Like often that we've, we've been taught, in fact, I talked to a guy after the service, last service, he said, really, I've been taught that before, and we kind of process this together. But we've often been taught that if you truly forgive someone, you'll just forget it even happened, forget the events happened. Well, that's very unrealistic. It's just not true to life. You're always going to remember. And if God is our model, you can see that this is true of Him, that, like, think of something you did in your life that was really stupid five years ago, and you ask God for forgiveness, and now you do it again today. If you go back and say, hey, God, remember what I did five years ago, and I remember that whole thing, well, I did it again, it's not like God's going to be going, what? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Five years ago, let me search. Da, 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 no, can't find it. What'd you do? Did you ask me to forgive you? Yes, I did. Okay, well, I guess that's why. I can't even remember it then. You see, like God doesn't do that. As you look in the Bible, uh, there are many examples of famous leaders of his that asked for forgiveness and he forgave them, and yet their sins are in the Bible, right? Like David with Bathsheba, Psalm 51. Now, it's not like God looks at the Bible and goes, oh, I only see chapter 50 and 52. I, don't, I can't remember what happened with David, you see? So when the Bible says that God remembers our sins no more, it doesn't mean he literally forgets them. It means he doesn't hold us accountable for them. It's as if we never committed them, Right? So it doesn't mean to forget or to forget. Second thing it doesn't mean is to forgive someone doesn't mean to minimize or to excuse their behavior. Now, this is really important because some of you grew up in families who were very dysfunctional, and this is how forgiveness went. That along the way you've picked up that if you forgive someone, it means to kind of excuse what they did as if it weren't that big a deal. That to forgive it means, well, I'm sure you didn't mean to. I'm sure you didn't know. Well, I'm probably overreacting, you see. And so we think that forgiveness is minimizing their sin or offense, and that's what it means to forgive. So it's no big deal. Now we can just kind of get past it. That's not what forgiveness is. In fact, it's impossible to truly forgive someone until we're honest about the crime committed against us. You can't forgive something that never happened, right? And so if someone lied, they betrayed, they ripped you off, they hurt you, they, lo- uh, they stole, well, you know, whatever they did, that if we're going to forgive them, that we have to admit, like, hey, this is what they did. It was really bad. You know, it was, it was a bad thing. And so, so forgiveness is not minimizing. It's not pretending. A third, I think, myth about forgiveness is that often we think forgiveness is instantaneous, that true forgiveness is instantaneous. You know, that, like, that if you forgive someone, you're just like, you're over it. Um, 
Uh, so, for example, I'll, I'll see this sometimes like with a, a couple that maybe one of the, the members of the couple has had an affair. And, and so then they eventually get back together and the offending party says, would you forgive me? And the other person says, yes, I will forgive you. And then a week later, the, the spouse who got offended against is like upset or they have some hurt or a bad memory or something. And they kind of like when they, they bring it up, the, the other person says, well, what? I thought you forgave me about that, you know, as if that it should just be gone. And the reality is, is that forgive, the decision to forgive can take place in an instant. But the process of forgiveness actually takes time. And it actually takes a lot of decisions to forgive over and over again. I often compare it to the healing of a wound. Like if you have a physical wound, you get injured. Um, it's like that, it takes a while for that wound to heal. Now the ultimate goal is that it would heal and that it would no longer be sore to the touch. Uh, when I was a, a kid, it was in uh, fifth grade, I had a, uh, I had a very bad bicycle action, uh, accident. It was just going really fast and a bad accident. And uh, I had a five-point skull fracture, almost died, tore up my back, and uh, with just a lot of deep wounds, and, which my wife says explains a lot of things. But, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, uh, but if today, uh, if you were to look at my shoulder, I still have some scar tissue there from that, that, those wounds. And the thing is, I can remember the events, but it's no longer sort of the touch. And to me, this is the goal of forgiveness, is that we come to a place where we remember what happened, but it's no longer emotionally sort of the touch. We, we've kind of, we've, we've left it behind, okay? So, um, so if forgiveness isn't minimizing, if it's not forgetting, if it's not pretending, if it's not excusing, if it's not instantaneous, so what is it? Um, and I want to give you a couple of phrases that I think will be helpful that come from the Bible, okay? Uh, the first thing I, I'd say if we define forgiveness is forgiveness is, first of all, it's letting go. It's a letting go. You say, well, letting go of what? Well, it's a letting go of the sin. It's a letting go of the offense. It's a letting go of the crime. It's a letting go of the hurt, the bitterness, and the anger. It's a letting go of the right to prosecute. It's letting go of the right to hurt you back. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. So forgiveness is a, a letting go of that right to hurt you back. It's interesting because in the New Testament, the, one of the most common words used for forgiveness is a little Greek word that's called aphiami. And aphiami means to release or to let go. And so when the Bible says to forgive one another, it's saying release it. Let it go. We're going we're gonna to give the person a get-out-of-jail-free card. Okay? You, 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 you get you know, this one, we're going to let this go. A second phrase I think that's helpful or kind of a concept is a canceling of a debt. So if one phrase is to let it go, a second phrase would be to cancel a debt. And this, of course, comes from Jesus himself. Remember what he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So like when we sin against God or anyone else, it's like we're in their spiritual debt. And to forgive someone is to wipe the debt off the books. You know that person no longer owes you. Or to use Paul's metaphor here in Romans 12, it's like taking the debt and saying, I'm wiping it off my books. I'm giving it to God to be my collection agency. You know, I'm going to let God collect on this debt in his time, his way, but it's wiping it off my books, okay? And so forgiveness is a letting go. It's a, a, it's a, a canceling of a debt. Now, here's a couple things I want you to catch about forgiveness. First of all, I want to come back to what I said early. 
But I want you to catch this, that for a Christ follower, forgiveness is a non-negotiable. Can I tell you this, that one thing that really makes me nervous and scared is when I hear someone who claims to be a Christ follower make the following statement. I know we're supposed to forgive, but I will never forgive this one person for what they did. That is a very scary thing to say. And I'll tell you why. Because remember what Jesus said. He said, we're to pray, uh, God, will you forgive us our uh, sins as we forgive those who sin against us? In other words, when we pray that prayer, what we're saying is, God, will you use me as a model for you? Will you use the way that I forgive this person the way that you forgive me? And then Jesus went on to say, in fact, it's there on your note sheet in that same passage in chapter 6 of Matthew. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if, but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So you catch this? This is what it means to be a Christ follower. We come before the God of the universe and we say, God, I'm guilty. I deserve to go to hell. Um, but you died for me. And because of your death on the cross, I plead with you, will you forgive me? Of, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did. This is what it means to be a Christ follower, right? And so Jesus says, yes, I will. But if you're going to follow me, here's the second part of the deal. Is it as I've forgiven you, now I expect you to forgive others. This is a non-negotiable. And it goes to the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christ follower. So there's a lot of things that we know that we're supposed to do as a Christ follower. This is not one of the peripheral things. This is a heart and soul thing. It's a non-negotiable. The second thing I want you to catch, though, is that this forgiveness is to be a way of life for us. This is not something that we occasionally, like a tool in our closet that we pull out occasionally every three years when someone really does us wrong. That as Christ followers, forgiveness is to be a way of life. There's a quote there on your note sheet from Martin Luther King, a great quote, forgiveness is not just an occasional act, it's a permanent attitude. He's right on the money with that. Now, we started the day with his story at Nickel Mines. So the killer's there, he's blockaded in the door, he's got the ten little girls there. He waits about a half an hour, and then he just loses it. The... uh, the deputy coroner from Lancaster County that came that day after he'd killed himself, who went in and, and, and saw the scene, so it was unbelievable. She said there was not a desk or a chair, a wall that was not splattered with blood and, 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 uh, and glass everywhere. And uh, he began to uh, re- just unload on these 10 little girls. And Three of the girls died instantly that day of multiple wounds. All the girls had multiple wounds. Three of the girls died instantly. Two of the girls died the next day. The other five girls were all in, many in critical condition, and many of them have long-range, long-term disabilities to this day, two years later, because of those injuries. Tragic, unbelievable situation. But what's so amazing about this story is how the Amish community responded. I don't know if you followed this in the news, but it was unbelievable. Within hours, they were reaching out to the killer's family. Remember, he killed himself, but they were reaching out to the killer's family with love and forgiveness, moving towards them. 
In fact, when the killer's father, father drove up, he just wanted to see what the, the mess his son, you know, what his son had done. When the killer, you can imagine this in no, most settings. Just imagine this, you know, that the you could just imagine the family's going wanted to pummel this guy, just kill him. It's his son who had done this. But you know what they did? They went out to, to, to meet him, and this father who was just heartbroken, for an hour he sobbed, and one of the Amish men just held him in his, in his arms for an hour while he sobbed and to comfort him. And not only did they not respond with retaliation, they moved all the way to the law of forgiveness and began to do good. In fact, uh, in the days and weeks that followed, $4.3 million poured in from around the world to help with this tragedy. And you know, one of the first things that the Amish community did, and this wasn't just a single person or a single family, this was the whole response of the whole community. They set up a fund for the family of the killer and his children because they had lost their breadwinner and now they'd be provided for. In the, in the, the next week or so, when they had the memorial service for the killer himself, for Charles himself, about half the people were there were Amish people who came to support the family. When they had the, one of the funerals for one of the five little girls who was killed, the family invited the wife of the killer and his children to that service to help them with the healing. Pro- Do you see what I'm saying? This is moving past, uh, moving past not the law of re- retaliation. This is moving to the law of forgiveness. And the researchers that were there and the newspaper reporters who studied this, they were blown away. They'd never seen anything like this, any part of the world they'd ever been. And they interviewed person after person over the coming weeks and months to say, help us understand how a whole community could respond with such love and such forgiveness to a horrendous atrocity. And you know what they heard over and over again? They said, this is what Jesus has taught us to do. And this is what we do. And the, uh, the researchers said that what they realized is that this is part of their cultural DNA. This is something they've been practicing their whole lives. In fact, some of the researchers, there's a book there I quoted from uh, Donald Crable and Stephen Knoll. It's called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. And look at that quote. He says, for them, forgiveness is more than a good thing to do. It is the thing to do. You see this? Now, are you catching what I'm saying? Non-negotiable. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. There are very few things Jesus will ever ask to do that are more to the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower than to love those who hurt us. You see, there's there's no time we are more like Jesus than we love those who've hurt us, and this is what he calls us to do. It's a non-negotiable. Now, is this easy? (laughs) Whoa, no, this is hard, isn't it? Man, this is so hard. So how do we do this? Just a couple steps I want to suggest. Uh, first thing I want to say is that this sounds easy in a sermon. If you've ever been there, this is, seems like impossible in real life, doesn't it? I mean, this is one of the hardest things that Jesus ever asks us to do. But there's a couple steps I think we need to do if we're going to grow in this area. Number one is we need to stop defending our retaliation. That if you want to grow in this area, that we have to, first of all, stop defending our right to retaliation. And if you've ever been in a situation like this, you know how our minds work. Well, yeah, but if you knew what they did, if you were there, if you understood, you don't understand. 
And, and, and what I'd say is, no, I don't understand. I wasn't there, but Jesus was there, and all I'm doing is relaying his teaching on this topic, what he's saying on this, that he does understand that he was there. And, and the first step is that we have to stop defending our right to anger. We have to stop defending our right to bitterness. We have to start defending our right to hatred, and we have to go face down before God, and we have to repent of our reaction. You see, in the Bible, there's sins of action, what we do, and there's sins of reaction. Sin, like bitterness and anger and hatred, that is sins of reaction. And there's no room for it. So the first step is we need to go face down before God and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't forgive this person on my own. There's impossible. I don't have the ability to do that. I need your help. I need the help of your Holy Spirit. But I want to stop defending my right. I want to stop holding on to my right of retaliation. I want to let it go. That's the first step. The second step is we need to start practicing forgiveness in the small stuff. You know, many times, what we do in our life is we wait until something's huge and big to, to try to learn about forgiveness. That's a hard way to learn, you know? Uh, this summer, I took a course on uh, motorcycle safety. And I, I remember going to that course, and they started this off. I'd ridden some before, so I wasn't, like, totally new at this. But it was, this was a course assuming you knew nothing. They started you off on the day one, and you, you sat on your motorcycle without it turned on, and you walked it across the parking lot. It's like, really? You know? Um, but what, what, what do they understand? They understand that skills build on themselves. So you start with the basics. And often we come in, and we try to figure out how to navigate a slide on our motorcycle. We've never been on a bike before, you see, spiritually. But what we do is we, we come in and some of the huge hurt, and we go, okay, i got to learn about forgiveness now. It's a tough time to learn when there's major hurt. That, and, and so God gives us opportunities to practice forgiveness every day, and we need to take these opportunities. Like in your life, every day you have opportunity. You go to a restaurant, and the waiter gives you horrible service, right? Uh, you, you're in the checkout line. You've got the checkers totally rude. You've got a boss at work that's like a full-time opportunity for you to learn practice forgiveness. Right? you got a spouse who's un, un, unrealistic or whatever. you got kids that are going crazy, whatever. Like God gives us small opportunities to practice forgiveness all the time. Times to let it go. Time to give people a get-out-of-jail-free get card, you see? That he gives us small things. I, I joke about this, but seriously, one of my greatest spiritual laboratories in life is the freeway. Right? I just learned, God just, it's a, it's a constant place of spiritual growth for me. Because I've got all these little rules that are basically one step below the Constitution in importance. You know, like, like you don't drive 20 and pull out in front of somebody, right? Or if you're on the freeway, like you don't make a lane change so that the guy behind you has to slow down. Like you pull a lane change, they shouldn't have to slow down, right? That's one of my rules. My ultimate rule is if you're in the fast lane, go fast. Right? This is like the ultimate, like have you never been to driver education? Right? The fast lane is to go fast. Have you never seen the sign, slower traffic, stay to the right? Like, hello. 
If you want to go 55, great, save gas, but do it in the slow lane. Right? Right? And so, but you know, in my life, there's just like all these opportunities. You feel the frustration coming. The waiter treats you wrong. You start to get an attitude, right? These are the opportunities every day in our life as Christ followers. We need to start practicing letting it go. Practicing giving out, of, giving out the, uh, the, the get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, here's the last thing I want you to catch. You do understand this, don't you, that when Jesus calls us to forgive, he's looking out for your best interest. You do understand this, that when we hold on to our anger and our hatred and our bitterness, the one who loses the most is you. Right? We, we get this? And so when Jesus comes and asks us to do the hard thing and to forgive that person, you, you understand this. He's not asking you to do it just because it's the right thing. And then somehow he delights in asking you to do hard things. Jesus will never ask you to do a hard thing unless it's a key to your freedom. You see? And so when he comes he, and he asks you to forgive that person that you say hurt you so badly, maybe it's that ex-spouse who took you to court and lied their, through their teeth to get custody of your kids. Or maybe it's that father who molested you when you were a child. Or maybe it was that boss who let you go for political reasons. Or maybe it's that person who lied about you and slandered behind your back. Or it's that sister-in-law who's torn the family apart. Or whoever it is, when he asks you to forgive them, he's doing it. Because he's looking out for you and your freedom, you see? And so is it hard? Yes, it's hard. Can you do it on your own? No, you can't. The Holy Spirit's going to have to help you to do what you can't do on your own. But the first two steps, we've got to let go of the law of retaliation. We have to embrace the law of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things. I know for me, I think for most people, this is one of the hardest things you ask us to do. There's something within us that rebels against forgiveness. There's something within us that makes it feel like all the justice in the universe is going down the tubes, that we have to make them pay. They did something wrong. They hurt us. We have to hurt them back. Lord, it's just part of our fallen wiring as human beings. And and so, God, as a church, as your followers, we call on you for your mercy and we call on you for your forgiveness for those times we've refused to forgive. We call on you for your grace and your strength to be able to do what we can't do on our own. I pray for those brothers and sisters right now that as I'm talking about their life and who is it in their life that they need to let out of jail, that they know exactly who it is, but, but they don't have the strength, Lord, they don't. They're willing to forgive. They're willing to admit that it's wrong, the bitterness they've held. They're willing today to let it down the best they know how, but they just need help. And so, Lord, we, we call up on you as our deliverer, the one who makes all things possible to come and help us. And, Lord, we pray you'd make this place here at Rocky Peak a place where we as a church, we renounce the law of retaliation. We embrace the law of forgiveness, that we don't do eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We follow you who died for us while we were enemies, to turn us into friends. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.